0: Well, if you would, open your Bibles, uh, Romans chapter 8. Today we're looking at verses 18 through 30. It's also printed in your bulletin as well. Um, I think this is a really appropriate topic today in light of the fact that this is the first Sunday of Lent as we, as we ponder and consider the suffering that our Savior went through um, and what that means for us and, and, and how we suffer in this life. You know, last week, week we looked at that amazing doctrine, the, uh, the doctrine of adoption that God the Father, through the work of his Son, uh, forgives sinners and adopts us into his family. And And last week we looked at, what, the spirit of, of adoption. But Paul ended that passage with verse 17 with a very interesting statement. He he, um, he said that if we're children of God, then we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then he said these perplexing words. He said, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Paul says that the pathway to future glory, as it was for Jesus, uh, must be through our present sufferings. To which the obvious question is this, uh, is it worth it? Uh, Does future glory outweigh present sufferings? Romans chapter 18 verses 18 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. We are a people who live in a suffering world. We are a people who suffer in all sorts of ways. Help us to understand your love for us in the midst of these things. Um, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, this marvelous truth that you've given us in your word this morning, we pray, amen. Our hymn a response uh, in your bulletin there should be familiar to, new- to you. And- Perhaps you've heard the story behind it. I know I've mentioned it to you before, uh, but maybe you don't. Uh, It's the timeless hymn, It Is Well, by Horatio Spafford. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire virtually um, ruined Horatio Spafford. It was almost the biggest trial of his life. Almost. Two years later, in 1873, he put his wife and four daughters on a ship and sent them over to England. Midway through the journey, the ship collides with another ship and sinks quickly. All four girls died, and she barely, the wife barely escaped. He heard about the accident, and then he received a telegram, just two words, saved alone. Spafford himself got on a ship to go be with his grieving wife in England, And as he passes over the part in the ocean where his four daughters drowned, he wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. His daughter's life, four thousand or life thousands of feet below the surface. What on earth could cause him to to rejoice that it is well with his soul? Perspective. Not just any perspective, but gospel perspective. The gospel gives us a perspective that allows us to endure with hopefulness. In verse 18, Paul says that there is a glory coming for all believers that is so great and so good that all the suffering on earth isn't even worth comparing to it. Paul wants us to have that perspective and to grow in it. But that's not naturally how we see things, right? We tend to see things just the opposite we consider that all the glory in the world couldn't make up for the suffering that we're experiencing in the moment, right? This lack of of perspective manifests itself in two ways. One, you know, many people see themselves as content in this world as it is. They're fine seeking the glory in this world, whatever it will give them. They set their hopes on achieving earthly success. They think, uh, so long as things go according to my plan, I should have a pretty decent life. But not everybody is content with the glory of this world. Many find themselves in a perpetual state of groaning. Life hasn't turned out remotely close to what they had hoped it would be. Dreams have turned to sorrows. Health has turned to nagging pain. Love has turned into Rejection. There's so much suffering and pain in the world that if it was possible to, 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 to stack it all up into one big pile, there'd be enough in, one given, in every given day to block out the sun. And so it's no surprise that the average person, no, even the average Christian concludes that no glory could ever assuage the suffering that we are mired in. Thankfully, these God-given words of Paul lift us up. They reboot our hearts and our minds. They give us a perspective to see what God is up to. And he is nothing, he's up to nothing short of delivering his children into a miraculous glory. Once again, Paul is focusing upon the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Here we see him as the spirit of glory. And Paul shows us that the spirit of glory gives us a proper perspective. And looking at that, we're going to look at three points. We're going to look at the glory, the groaning, and the gift. First, the glory. And here's kind of the big idea. When when we perceive the glory, it allows us uh, to have a proper perspective. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis, uh, through one of his characters, says this. Listen to what he says. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Is there something to come that is so good and so satisfying that all the hurt, not just in your life, but in all the world, all the hurt will be swallowed up and made to be nothing? Paul says yes. Verse 18, we read, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, Paul isn't saying that our suffering is inconsequential. He isn't isn't saying, come on now, it's not that bad. Of all people, Paul knows the agony of life here on earth. In one of his letters to the church in Corinth at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul writes of some of the suffering that he's endured as he's served as Lord Jesus Christ. Multiple imprisonments with countless beatings, often near dead. He writes, five times I received from the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure and apart from other things check this out There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I think we can safely say that that Paul, who wrote this, had suffered more than most, physically and emotionally. He's speaking from experience. He is saying God's grace is so good that it involves a plan to swallow up all of our suffering into an eternal joy that satisfies all our earthly longings. Now, what is this glory that's to be revealed to us? And what is it about this glory that gives us a perspective that transcends our suffering? Well, the glory is the inheritance that we read of last week in chapter 17. Jesus has pledged to share his glorious inheritance with the children of God. We read of it also in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter thanks God for the, the living hope that we have in this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power until that day comes. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. See, God has promised a day when he will recreate this beautiful but fallen universe, and all whom he welcomes into his family, will experience an eternal joy. No longer will there be any suffering whatsoever. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears. We will have, I don't know how this works out, but we're going to have amazing, miraculous bodies that seem familiar, but um, are far superior in uh, many different ways. And check this out. No more will we ever have again bad desires that tear at our souls. And no more will we ever again have good desires that can never be realized. I know for some of you the question is, this sounds good and all, but is it really true? We need not look any further than Jesus Christ, who suffered so that glory to come is guaranteed. We need to look no further than Christ our Savior. Jesus died so that the glory may come. In the book of Hebrews, we read this. Let us look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, and listen here, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. My friends, there could be no greater suffering than what Jesus endured on the cross. Yes, his death was brutal, brutally painful. A Crucifixion was a horrible way to die. But the greatest of his suffering wasn't the physical, but the emotional, the spiritual. Jesus took upon himself all the sins of the world, of the entire world, all the punishment that these sins deserve. Jesus, who had never experienced any separation from his heavenly father throughout all eternity, and the moment he hung on the cross bearing our sins, he was cut off from his own heavenly father. The suffering of our savior is beyond compare to what anything that we can go and experience here on this earth, and yet Jesus looked to that future glory to come, and it gave him the perspective to endure the cross. My friends, we would have no salvation if Jesus didn't have this perspective. We would not know what um, glory is to come if Jesus had not endured suffering. Which shows us that, that suffering and joy need not be separated. In fact, they belong together. Without the suffering of our Savior, there could never be joy for him And joy for us. What we see is Jesus had perspective. That joy brought him through the suffering. Christian, there's a day coming when all of your suffering will make sense. In some mysterious way, it will all add up. It will be figured out in the age to come. So let me ask you, where is your hope anchored? Do you see your life from the perspective of this future glory to come? That's the glory. Now for the... Groaning. (laughs) Proper perspective helps us to groan with hope. In our passage, it's interesting. Paul shows us that uh, the creation groans with hope as well as the church groans with hope. First, let's look at how the creation groans with hope. We see it in verses 19 through 23. Creation, or the created universe, is mentioned four times, once in each verse. Notice how the, the sufferings of creation are described. Verse 20, creation was subjected to futility and not willingly. Futility means like frustration. God has subjected nature to a frustrating experience. You see, man brought sin into the world, not just on himself, but also on all of creation. When mankind fell, when Adam fell, all of creation came under a curse as well. Verse 21 says that creation is held in bondage to Corruption, that is, it's subject to decay. My friends, there is a continuous cycle of birth, growth, death, and decomposition. The whole universe appears to be running down. In verse 22, we read that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Futility, decay, pain, These are the words the apostle uses to describe the present suffering of nature, of creation. Do these words not sound eerily familiar to what we experience as human beings? And yet for all of its groaning, I want you to see this point, for all of its groaning, creation has the proper perspective. Do you see that? Look at verse 20 again. Creation is subject to futility in hope verse 21, creation is in bondage to corruption and decay, but but it has the hope that it will one day set free and obtain the the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Look again at verse 22. Uh, Yes, creation is groaning in pain, but what kind of pain is it? Is it pain from being stabbed to death? No, it's pain from childbirth. Now, I know this may surprise you, but I have no idea uh, how bad childbirth pain is, alright? But I was present for the birth of all three of my daughters, and when I say present, I mean I was like there, I mean like right there, all right? So I I could have said, scoot over, I got a catcher's mitt, you know, it was right there. And um, my wife was a real champ at giving birth, but I can tell you Never before or since have I seen her face so beat red, right? And and within her, there was this groaning that that seemed to come from some, some deep recess, some untapped resource within as she cried out. But for all her pain, she groaned with hope. See, for after the pain comes the new life. See, creation is groaning for the new birth. It's longing for the pain to end, for the freedom from decay to arrive, for the frustration to stop. Have you ever been to a construction site and they got those boards all around me. they got a couple holes somewhere where you can peep through? you got you to stand on your tippy toes just to see the new creation that, that's being built back there? That's the image that Paul is giving us of creation. It, it's on its tippy toes, longing for the day when God brings this all about. My friends, creation has the proper perspective on suffering. Creation is groaning for the new birth. That's how creation groans with perspective. Now for how the church groans with perspective. We see this in verses 23 through 25. See, the believer, like creation, groans with hope. Or at least we should. Verse 23 and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the re- redemption of our bodies. And we know Paul isn't speaking here about every human being. He's speaking of the church, those who belong to God by faith in Christ, those who had the first fruits of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. First fruits were the first fruits on the vine that came long before the harvest. But what did they tell you? The first fruits signified that there was a bountiful harvest to come. Just wait, it's coming. Paul is saying that God's children have been given the first fruits of the Holy Spirit into our lives. Paul adds in verse 24 that for in this hope we are saved. Christian, understand this. Right now in your present state of things, you're only like half saved. You're half adopted. Our minds have been renewed, but we're still subject to to sin and temptation, are we not? Our bodies are still bound to the cycle of birth and growth and death and decomposition. Christian, you and I are longing for the fullness of salvation that is guaranteed us. And so with these words, Paul is meaning to encourage us that we have the first fruits of the spirit of glory. God has lovingly placed his spirit in us to remind us that we are his children and to lift our heads that we may grow with hope. Paul is saying that in this hope, and this hope alone, that we will ever experience salvation. Maybe your hope is in your career. As good as a career can be, and they can be great, uh, it cannot save you. At least not to the degree to which you long for it to. All careers are like human bodies. They're birthed, they grow, they die, they decompose. There is no other salvation that can fully satisfy our groanings. That's why Paul calls this our hope. Now, remember in the Bible, the word hope isn't used how... Modern people tend to use the word hope. You know, today people hope to win the lottery or they hope to find a, a loving spouse. But in the Bible, hope is intertwined with certainty. You see, biblical hope rests not in the will or the power of fallen human beings, but biblical hope ri- resides in the power of a powerful, creative God who is perfect in all things and in his, in his, in anything he sets his heart and mind to, He accomplishment, he accomplishes. So we must know that if God has given us a hope, it is certain. And so Paul plays here the role now of uh, Captain Obvious in verse 24. He says something that seems so obvious, but it has a really important point. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For, for, For who hopes for what he sees, right? Thanks, Captain Obvious. Like, no one hopes for what they already have, right? But Christian, let this sink into your minds. Your best hope for living life now until Christ returns, your very best hope is to groan with hope. That's the very best life you can have right now, this side of Christ returning. And so, Christian, if you wake up tomorrow and Christ hasn't returned, what is the very best life you can live on that day? To groan with hope. It gets no better than that. If you groan with hope, you're living as God intends for his children to live. The spirit of glory has given his positive effect upon you. You see, the Christian's calling in this age that we're presently in is to be groaners. And groaners not just over our own suffering and circumstances, but groaning over the suffering and the circumstances of others around us. And the Christian's calling in this present age is to bring gospel perspective to bear into our own lives, but also into the lives of those around us who suffer. The church is to be a people who, in the midst of our groanings, hope for the glory we do not yet see. Like creation, we're to to groan on our tiptoes, to look out to the horizon of time, awaiting in hope for the glory to come. Now for the gift. With the proper perspective, we see that God is delivering to us a gift. Let me ask you, is it possible that God is actively helping you and you don't even know it? Is it possible? That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. In the remaining verses, Paul helps us open our eyes so that we can gain perspective. Paul wants us to recognize two things. One, to recognize that our Heavenly Father has sent a helper to help us in our helplessness. And two, to recognize that God is in control of all things. He will work things out. Have you ever been in so much pain That you cannot even begin to pray. It could be physical pain, but it could also be pain from facing a difficult life situation or perhaps deeply felt grief over some failings or flaws that still exist in your life. Christians find themselves wanting to pray, but having no words to pray. This happens often. Paul tells us that the children of God have been given a special intercessor none other than the spirit of glory. When we are weak, the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. The creation groans, the children of God groan, and the spirit God has placed in us groans on our behalf. When we are too weak to even know what to say to our heavenly father. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a wonderful picture of of our Heavenly Father's love for us. When we're so overcome on our knees before the Father, when we're so grief-stricken that all we can do is utter some guttural cries for mercy, the Spirit enters into those groans on our behalf. And notice that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit enables us to pray in line with God's plans and purposes for us and for this world. If you've been a Christian for at least a little while, I'm confident of this, that you've experienced this work of the Spirit in your life, groaning on behalf of you when you do not know what to say. A time of heart-wrenching prayer, which at the end you have a peace in your heart that, that makes no sense. That's part of the work of the first fruit of the Spirit in your life. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Christian, what a gift, huh? Does the knowledge of such a gift of the spirit of glory give you confidence to pray even when you do not know what to say? Well, not only is the Holy Spirit a gift in that he intercedes for his children, he also powerfully works to bring about God's sovereign plan for his people and for this universe. We see here that that the Holy Spirit works for good and for glory. First for good. Is it all possible that God can take the worst suffering situations of of our lives and work them for good? That's what Paul says. So he can and he always does. Look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Here is a promise that transforms our perspective, right? The good things in life. We don't deserve them. So we receive them with gratitude, knowing that they came from our loving Heavenly Father's hand. But so too the bad things in life. When things go wrong, God works in all things for our good. See, nothing happens in this universe without God's authority. God is sovereign over all the events of this world. So nothing happens by blind chance this means that all those good things that you pray for, but God does not provide you, well, then God must have determined that they are not good for you, at least not at this moment. And those difficult trials that you face, God must have determined that these are good in, in, when viewed in his larger plan, good for you and good for his creation. I think most of you know, like four years ago, I was riding my bike and I got ran over by this really big truck. And for at least a year and a half, uh, my life was um, utter misery, Um, physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually. uh, Pain was there. It was severe. But throughout it all, I, I knew one thing. I knew that God was sovereign and that he works out all things for good, that he allowed this into my life. Although I don't know why I couldn't put a finger on it. I've been taught this. I've been taught as well with my soul, and you know what? Four years, four years later, I cannot stand before you and say, "Aha! Uh-huh, now I know why." Woo! God revealed it. I, I know what He was doing in all that time, right? But I can't see a few things, and I can say this: one thing—it's possible that God interceded and put me on the sidelines because He knew. I was going to fail. I was going to commit some sin that would disparage his church or drag the name of Christ into the dirt. You know, I've prayed that God, would, if anything, if I would ever do anything that would harm uh, the, the ministry of the gospel, that he would kill me or, or take me out of commission. And so who am I to say that God didn't do that, right? He would be good to do that. But I also know that maybe some other things are going on as well. I kind of hope so. <laughs> Um, I spent close to two years in physical therapy, and I became friends with one of the guys who works there. And I've seen him off and on. I've spent time with him. I really enjoy his personality. We get along quite well. Uh, but last week, I spent a couple hours just hanging out with him. And he was asking deep questions. A lot of them reminded me of the questions I had before I came to Faith in Christ. And I was just, I was loving him. And I'm like, when I was done, it was over. And you know, I invited him to Christianity, Explore, and pray prayed that he comes. Uh, but at the end of it, I'm like, going, God, I never would have met this guy had it not been for getting hit by a truck and needing two years of therapy. All this to say, we must have the perspective that God works all things together for good for those who love Him, who've been called according to His purposes. Christian, does this give you perspective? Does it perhaps change how you view things when that difficulty lands in your lap? Paul wraps up this section with some of the best perspective-giving words in the, in the entire Bible. How do we know that this day of glory that Paul speaks of will actually arrive? Maybe there's contingencies I haven't thought of. Maybe I'm going to screw up so bad I'm going to blow it all. God's going to say, the heck with you, man. That was a huge mistake, that middle cough guy, right? Paul says, not a chance. Paul says that God has loved us in such a way that nothing can take away this future glory that's to come. Look at verse 29. It's perhaps one of the most astounding verses in all the Bible. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Remember last week, you looked at that doctrine of adoption where God adopts us into his family. Tell me, what what is the motivation behind adoption? Is it not love, right? (laughs) And what we see here is Paul's expanding on the love of our heavenly father. Those whom God has called according to his purposes will one day be conformed to the image of his son. Scratch your head on that one. I don't know what you're hoping for, you know, just maybe a little bit better you, you know, without some of those bad habits, you know, and maybe the knee get fixed a little. I don't know what you're hoping for. God is something far greater than, than you could ever hope for or imagine. God is going to transform you into the glorious image of the most beautiful man who's ever lived and who's risen from the dead and is now arrayed in glory and splendor, whose life is, is a life of love and joy and goodness. He's called us to, to experience an, an infinitely pure and happy and joyful and fruitful eternal existence. Now, you might not consider that the greatest end, but it is. There is no greater you possible than the you God has coming. I know that's bad English, but maybe you understand what I'm saying. And so understand this. If you are in Christ, God's ultimate plan for you is complete. Uh, The work he has begun in you will come about. And when he's finished, you will be transformed in the image of God. The image of God in human form. And that's what we were originally created. We were made in God's image in the garden. And that image was tarnished and broken. So God had to send his own son, who is perfect and free from sin in order to redeem and to restore us. Not so we can float away in some bodiless existence and with harps and, you know, hanging around in some boring, eternal, ethereal existence. No, God's purpose is to restore this very earth. The creation is like leaning over the boards, like trying to see it coming, right? The creation is longing for this. God is longing for it. He's, he's longing for what? The sons of God's to come back. The creation is longing for for you and me to be redeemed and restored so we can come back here and live the life how we're supposed to live. That's what's coming. Shame on us for getting so wrapped up in the little bitty things of this world, the little tiny glories that seem to be so nice that we could just get them. The house here, the house there, the job here, the relationship there. These are all good things, but they mean nothing unless they're somehow a part of the, the greater thing to come. Does that make sense? God has us on a trajectory of glory. All the loggings in your heart and in your soul will one day be fully fulfilled. You will be the person you long to be. You just Our minds need to be opened up to what God has planned for us. God has predestined this. What does that mean? It's kind of a scary word, right? Well, it's in the Bible. Kind of got to look at it. What does to be predestined mean? Predestination doesn't mean that God has all people on earth, like puppets on a string, and he's just fatalistically moving you through the events of your life. Predestination only has to do with eternal destinies. It has to do with uh, uh, you know, pre-beforehand uh, destining people. And what that means is predestination is God has predetermined your eternal destiny before you were ever born. You're either destined for heaven or hell. To be predestined means that God has chosen to give certain people eternal life in Christ. I know that's a hard thing to wrap your head around, but it's true. Who has God predestined? Paul says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. You know, all Christians are to believe in predestination. It's there in scripture, but not all Christians agree as to Exactly what that word means. Uh, the word "forenew" in our text clouds some people's understanding. Some people think "forenew" or "foreknowledge" means that God, uh, in the past, looked into the future and He just saw how people would respond to Jesus. And and oh hey oh okay Bob responded well all right good all right so um, I'm going to predestine you now uh, you know that's what it is to know in the future that that um, that. That foreknowledge is, is an intellectual exercise. But the word to know and the word knowledge in the Bible isn't always an intellectual thing. In fact, the very first time the verb to know comes about, it's, uh, we see it in Genesis 4, verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife? He just knew of her intellectually? No, because look what happened. And she conceived and bore Cain. (laughs) All right, so there we go. Uh, The the verb to know is a relational word, right? And when it's used of God, knowing his people, it is speaking of God's relational love towards sinners. God's foreknowledge is this. It's his eternal divine delight. God in eternity past, before you were born, before you did anything good, Before you did anything bad, God determined to love you. I know it blows your mind, but that's how God operates. Understand this. If God did look into the future and just uh, to see who would believe or not, then membership in God's family is based on works and not grace. It means that God only calls the smart ones who believed. It means that grace is contingent upon man doing the right thing, receiving Jesus. But no, as we see all throughout scripture, salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, so that no one may boast. Christian, the reason why you love God right now is because God first loved you, and he sent his spirit of life upon you to give you life. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father enables me. Jesus said that no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he is first, what? Born again. I know know it blows our minds, but it's true. In love, God predestines certain people to experience his grace. Now, Paul mentions our being foreknown and predestined not to mess with our heads, <laughs> all right? So let's just kind of put that aside. If you've got questions about that, you want to talk about that later with me, I'd be glad to, to talk with you um, about that. But why does he tell us that we're predestined? It's, he does it to give us confidence, to encourage us. The last verse shows us why. Theologians call this verse the, the, the golden chain because several chains are bound together. The first chain is this. All those whom God predestined, he also called. What does this mean? Everyone that God has settled his eternal divine delight upon, he will call so that they can experience his grace. Remember, no one comes to the Father unless Jesus enables him. And this is the Holy Spirit enabling people to hear the message and really have hearts that desire it. The next chain is this. All those whom he called, he also justified. Paul is pointing to the certainty of God's actions. No single person that God has called will ever find themselves in a situation where in the end they say no to Christ. The link is 100%. All those he calls, he justifies. Everyone he calls will experience Christ's saving work. No one falls through the cracks. And this chain is linked to the last one. All those whom he's justified, he has also glorified. You notice in the past tense, it's in the past tense. (laughs) In God's mind, this is settled. In his mind, he sees there's this future day to come and it's as if it's done. Every single one whom he has lavished his eternal divine delight upon and has justified will be glorified. He will bring this about. It's It's his settled plan. It rests on his gracious character. It rests on his powerful love, not ours. No one will ever fall by the wayside. If God has set his love on you, it's secure and it's eternal. You will experience the glory to come. So that suffering you're experiencing, Christian, don't let it cloud your understanding of God's gracious plan for your life he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son so Christian the day of your glory is coming this is the most monumental gift you could ever receive and it is certain to come to pass you see why this passage is so important does it not give you perspective perspective Can you not sing with Spafford in a few moments? It is well, no matter what your circumstances are right now. The suffering of this world cannot even be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. Yes, all of creation is groaning, but it is groaning with hope. Creation is on its tiptoes, looking towards the horizon of time. Creation is waiting for the beautifully redeemed children of God, you and me, arrayed in glory, returning to this earth. Until that day, we groan too. But Christian, you do not groan as one without hope. We must wait for that day with patience. We must cry out to God in our weakness and allow the gift of the Spirit within to give us peace in the midst of our sorrows. And we must know that God works out all things for good to those that he has called And from this perspective, we must jettison all thoughts that cause us to think that God has abandoned us. He has not. Far from it, he has great and glorious plans for his children. And nothing can get in the way of those plans. Even the sins of his people cannot get in the way. Our glorious inheritance must come to pass, and it will, because God has determined in eternity past to lavish his eternal divine Delight on his sons and daughters, Christian. It is in this hope, and in this hope alone, that we are saved. May God give us perspective to see and long for the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Why well, these words seem too good to be true? I don't even think there's enough room in my brain to really try to put it all in there, to make sense of it all. I pray for each of us that we would take the pieces that we can and press them into our hearts, that we could try to get a better perspective on on what you are up to. Um, May you give us uh, hopeful hearts. May you cause us to be patient. May we trust in you no matter our circumstances. And um, we long for that day when you return and make all things right. Until then, help us to suffer along with others on this world that we could point them to the Savior that they too may share in this perspective that we've been so graciously given. We thank you. Amen.